Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. I've been talking to a ton of operators recently, and one of the big issues people are facing right now is a labor shortage in the restaurant industry. A lot of people during COVID left the industry completely when they lost their jobs temporarily. Um, and so when you're in a tight labor market, then what you have to do is A, you got to work harder to find those people, but B, you have to invest in systems that make people more efficient, allow them to do more, and also systems that are going to help get people productive quicker once you do find them, because we have to do more with less and we have to do it faster. The Ops Analytica operations management platform can guide employees through the steps that they have to do to do their jobs every day. We can make them productive faster. We can hold them accountable uh, to doing what they're supposed to do. And we can get them on the floor faster than spending a ton of time and money trying to get them to memorize what to do. We can just guide them through what they need to do. So check us out, opsanalytica.com and get a demo. You will not regret it. Hey there, Order Up Show podcast listeners. It's Tommy. I told you people that we would have more episodes and I have been killing it on episodes. I can't take all the credit. We hired a company to help us find people. It's been wonderful because I get to do the podcast every day now, which is great. Um, so anyways, thank you guys for listening. And we got another great interview for you today. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jeff Tezak. Jeff, how are you doing, sir? Good, good, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, uh, it's a pleasure, uh, and I'm looking forward to our conversation here. Jeff, uh, as you know, I think you said you were listening to another episode, but uh, we asked the same five questions to everybody, and uh, I'm excited to learn more about your company and what you're doing these days. So let's get to question number one, which is explain what you do today, and then take us through your career progression from your first job in the industry. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, Tommy. This is uh, going to be a heck of a roller coaster ride on my career progression. But um, so, what we have today is uh, I own a company named Tiga, and we're a health and wellness company based around the baobab fruit, which is a um, fruit that grows in the African savannas. Um, and so, what we've created is to start is a drink mix product that uses that fruit as its core ingredient, but it's also an electrolyte rehydration gut health. Um, product that you just drop directly into your water. And so we launched um, last year during the pandemic, 2020, we did a Kickstarter in May, um, which oh. we succeeded in. Um, yeah, so from May to June, we just kind of promoted it online, started there just to kind of get an idea if people would try it and buy it. Um, and then the last year, we've just been starting to work online. And then we've been actually out doing events since January um, to promote the product. Uh, as, as you know, we create a health and wellness um, product, and so we're big fans of preventative health and, uh, you know, getting out in front and making sure that you maintain quality health. Cool, man. And, and how'd you get there? <laughs> Heck of a story. So um, I guess I'll just, we start at the beginning, I suppose, at this one, yeah. right? Correct? Um, sure. So I play college um, baseball in well, a few different colleges, but I'm from San Diego originally. I went to Cal State Northridge in L.A., transferred back to San Diego and then ended up out in Nebraska. And so I finished up my college career there. Um, while I was, you know, in college, how this kind of ties into the industry. I know you mostly stick within the restaurant industry, but I've had a lot of experience in between my other jobs. So I, um, you know, I did catering, both bartend catering as well as 
um, direct catering throughout my college career. Um, but yeah, so I started in, or I lived in Nebraska for college where I did that bartend catering, um, and then played professional baseball with the, um, White Sox organization for a couple years. Nice. Um, after that, pretty much I was, I knew I was done professionally. So I actually moved overseas. Um, and so I moved, uh, to Austria directly <sighs> after my professional career. And, um, yeah, I spent, uh, you know, six, seven months, I think it was almost eight months that first year, you know, oh, less than six, we'll say, just for the government reasons. Um, <laughs> and then I ended up finding friends and uh, moving to um, Australia. And then I went back to Austria and then back to Australia. And then at that last stint in Australia, I lived there for over um, two years. Um, and then I made my way back to America via Spain. Um, and then how this even got to where we are now is I came back to go to grad school at Nebraska. And so I was going to grad school as well as coaching baseball there. And that's where I met our co-founder who is, uh, his name's Haruna and he's from Burkina Faso in West Africa. Sure. And so because I had been overseas for so long, I got along really well with people, you know, that were from different cultures and, and uh, different places. And so we had always, you know, he'd show me a new drink, he'd show me a new food, like he'd make me this or make me that. Um, and he, one day he just introduced me to their native drink, which is baobab milk and honey. It's a big drink that they drink there. And uh, it gives you a sustainable energy. So I tried it. Obviously, I'm lactose intolerant. It was probably a bad idea, but <laughs> it gave me a lot of energy, right? And it was something other than coffee because everything has caffeine nowadays. And that just began our literal like mission to um, create a product that was both healthy, natural, sustainable, and, and does a lot more for the people that create the core yeah. ingredients, uh, which is the biggest part for us. So in the long run, our big goal, you know, we want to create the popularity around this fruit because it helps, um, you know, everyone within that ecosystem, both the people that are harvesting the fruit, the people that are seeding the, seeding the natural powder that the fruit is. And then, um, you know, we can also make America a lot healthier at the same time. That's cool. Yeah. Sustain it. You know, those countries, if they can get like just a little bit of a foot up, right. Just get somebody buying that product. Then they, that can kickstart the entire economy. You know what I mean? Like, yes. it's crazy. And that's the, you know, that's the biggest thing. Baobab has been grass since 2009. So, um, recognized safe for anybody that doesn't know, generally recognized as safe in the U S since 2009, but it's a bulk ingredient, right? Like it, sure. you wouldn't know this, but it's in the, it's in the acai bowl at, at Costco, right? Things like that. Yeah. It's the fifth to 20th ingredient, in any product. And so what we saw the value was it's, it's nutritional value is insanely awesome. Like a hundred grams, a hundred grams of it literally out does acais, bananas, oranges, everything right. In every category. Sure. And so we wanted it as the core ingredient because with, Putting it as a core ingredient, we can start to talk about its benefits, what it is, what it does. Because 95% of the, the fruit actually just drops to the ground and is wasted. Um, oh, wow. so they're not they're not using it. And the and the tree is revered in Africa. So you asked me earlier about you know Tiga, the name, it means a tree of life. Um, and the, the the tree is known as a tree of life. And you would know it from the Lion King. Like people, most people we have to describe it as the Lion King tree or the Madagascar tree. Um, but yeah, sure. I mean, the bark's used, it stores water, the leaves are used, um, the seeds are used, like everything is used and nothing's wasted and they don't cut it down. They only grow more of them. And so just creating another um, economic system around it would be huge. And it's all communal. So nobody owns the trees either. 
Um, so these are all things in the works and, and plans, but obviously the first part is we got to create a popularity around um, the idea that this can help you. Because at the end of the day, as you know, it's got to provide a benefit to you for you to want to use it. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. So I got all kinds of things to talk to you about. So well, ironically, my neighbor from my last house, he play, he was from San Diego. He played at San Diego State, actually, baseball, and then was recruited by the Rockies, but got injured. So that's interesting. And then I guess my wife's cousin was a D1 catcher at Greeley. Now he's becoming a dog. Yeah, UNC. Yeah. UNC. Yeah, which you guys probably played occasionally just because of, like, proximity to Lincoln. Those are some um, of our favorite games. Yeah, those are some of our favorite games. Well, yeah, just – uh, yeah, because Nebraska, Colorado have a huge rivalry. Obviously, CU, when it comes to football, it's CU versus the Huskers. Um, and then I'm sure you guys, yeah, but there's a lot of D1 schools in northern Colorado. So I would assume that you guys have been playing against all those guys. And then as I was telling you, I spent a ton of time out there uh, when I was – I used to be a stand-up comic. I used to perform at the Omaha Funny Bone before it became the Omaha Improv. So that's cool. And there's not a lot of good African food in Omaha. So, yeah, that guy probably had a cookie food, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny, too, because he talked about it. Like, he moved here for a Fulbright scholarship. And so he had grown, you know, he has three kids and a wife. He's like, I hadn't sure. really ever cooked. And he moved here. And he, I mean, he, he figured it out. And he made some awesome dishes that we would eat, you know. A Fulbright scholarship? Wow. My, yeah, my so he's, daughter got one of those. This is insane. You have to be so smart to get one of those. And he is is and then you guys you guys were at university okay so you were at university of nebraska and then you lived in okay i got it i understand that's cool and so you played for the white Sox. were you in the were you down in the did you get to the majors or were you in the farm system definitely in the farm system so um i i played two years i got through a couple levels so i think they're going to actually shorten the farm system but just so you know or listeners know it's about five to six levels to ever make it yeah. through and so, um, yeah, I saw the writing on the wall pretty early on, but I really enjoyed the experience traveling and hanging out with the guys, um, oh, going yeah. to see new places uh, and getting to play baseball every day. Yeah. I mean, it's I don't, if people don't understand how insane baseball is, like even in the colleges, like in the D1 colleges, they have those summer leagues that are <laughs> that are underneath the farm system because that my uh, – my my wife's cousin Hunter was the was a catcher at Greeley until he blew out his knee, but like you know we would go see him play up in like Fort Collins or you know but there, I mean there, I mean there's probably like fifty thousand guys playing baseball that aren't in the professionals at any given time in this country and I'm just making that number up but it's insane how many guys are playing. It's a lot of people. I would. It's one percent of one percent of one percent at each level, and everybody pretty makes a th pretty much makes at the most in their lives a thousand dollars until you make it to the major leagues. Yeah, like a month. Oh yeah. So I did when I was a stand-up comic, and this is nineteen ninety nine, and I, and I don't want to brag, but I did seven and a half months on the road as an opener, as a stand-up comic opener. This is ninety nine. I drove forty five thousand miles, and I made seventy five hundred dollars. That was my best year. Like just like yeah, it crazy. sounds about right though. <laughs> like that's yeah. just like living on the road, doing what you want. Yeah. And the the fact is, you just don't make money getting to a lot of times do what you want to do that yeah. you love to do. You know that's what's that's what's been cool the last ten you know ten years, especially with the internet. Like people are able to do finally what they want to do and and make a living off of it. 
Yeah, it is kind of crazy. Like, and I always tell people too, like, you know, and with baseball, it's different, right? Because with baseball, you probably, if you're traveling around, you at least have a game that's three or four hours a day and you're on the bus going to that location and you're staying in like probably garbagey hotels. And at the, I would just hope that you're staying in oh, hotels were that I was staying in. Yeah, they were uh, garbage. Yeah. Yeah, I used to bring my own top sheet and put it down over the bed <laughs> and then sleep on a sleeping bag with my own pillow. Um, that's actually really smart. I hadn't thought of going that far. I always definitely wore a shirt and uh, debated on wearing pants and socks just because of those reasons. Oh, dude, the worst hotel I ever stayed at, I don't think I've told this story, is it was, it's been knocked down. I have a picture of it. It was called the Sahara Motel in Great Falls, Montana. Which Great no, Falls? That's where I played for two summers. Oh, <laughs> the worst town ever. I hate that town. Holy hell. I hate it. I I'm hate everything about it. I'm going to literally send this to my host family and they're going to laugh so hard. So I, so I was there. Okay. The last time I was in Great Falls, Montana, me and my wife had just started dating. So it was 2006. I was in grad school and uh, we had just started dating and I was like, Hey, you know, I was like, trying to be Mr. Cool guy. You know, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to do some stand up over spring break. Do you want to go with me? You know, like that kind of a thing. And she's like, mm -hmm. yeah, sure. Because I, at that point I was headlining. So then I had a three run through my three city run through Montana. And I had already prefaced her that the Sahara motel was the most, uh, I'm not going to curse, but it was the biggest garbage motel ever. So I stayed there one time, probably in the late nineties, early two thousands, the adjoining door didn't lock. There was an entire family next door, like making Chinese food in the room. And I was in the honeymoon suite of this disgusting motel with a heart shaped bed, heart shaped uh, hot tub and shag carpeting. And the only reason I didn't sleep in my car was that it was like under zero degrees outside. But I was seriously considering it. Like, like I, you know, you know, like when you go into a room and it's dirty and then you just feel like every follicle on your body's going off, even though it's not really, but you just think, oh my God, like who's, who's had sex in here? Who's done what in here? Like, what am I doing in here? Get me out of here. And the show was horrible. Um, <laughs> I'm just, I just, for people who don't know, like they just, you got to go to Great Falls to know all this, right? Like once okay. you've been there, you know, yeah, there's like, yeah. did you go to the mermaid restaurant or the bar, like the mermaid bar? Like, I feel like you would have done stand up at the mermaid bar, right? Well, like, I did it at the casino, the one that's in like, uh, off the main little strip. Yeah. So the last, the last time I was there, this is a true story. I had to do an hour and with stand up comedy, you just got to cover your time. If you're eating it or not. The rule is if you were paid for an hour, if you get off at 45, they're not gonna pay you. And you're not gonna get rebooked. So you have to do an hour. So literally I'm at the bar. Now I'm in the casino. The other thing they have to know about uh, casinos, they can't turn off the machines, it's against the law. You gotta have someone from the state in there for them to turn off the machines um, to get them serviced and whatnot because they don't want you monkeying with them you know, and, 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 and stealing people's money. So I literally was on like a four foot by four foot stage next to a row of slot machines in the bar of the casino. Uh, and I had to do an hour and these two poor people who were at the slot machines luckily stayed and just stared at me for an hour. Everybody else was like facing the TVs. And then every 10 to 15 minutes you get wheel of fortune <laughs> like that so try imagine like the concentration that a comic needs to do stand-up and then to literally have wheel fortune going up so much noise like you can't imagine a worse place for stand-up coming i stand up there for an hour 
horrible. The worst. I, I hate that time. <laughs> I can just see the places that you've had to do this at, and that just oh. sums it up. Yeah, and Montana is also fun because they send you the worst shots ever, and they scream at you to drink them, and they're always like Slaughter 151 and like Jaeger. It is just apps, and then they just start chanting, "Drink it, drink it, drink it," because they want to see if you'll puke. It's it's really <laughs> it's a it's a great place. It's a it's a. You know uh, what it is? Did you ever see? Uh, it would have been. Was it Doc? Yes, it would have been uh, Wyatt Earp when they go uh, the Wyatt Earp movie with um, Kurt Russell, where that like traveling done. band of uh, yeah Tombstone. That traveling band of like thespians come into town. That's what's performing in Montana's like. Just they don't shoot at you, but everything else is accurate. <laughs> yeah, I just, <laughs> I, I mean, I lived there for two summers. Like, yeah. I got a lot of stories from that place that can't be talked oh. about on, on podcasts. Nice. Okay. Well, I've taken this off the rails on that deal. Um, <laughs> That's all right. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, okay, real quick. Did you ever go to Stengelwert in Austria? Stengelwert? What is uh... it's a it's this crazy resort. It's in like Geyser. I'm gonna pull it up on my phone. Oh, no shot. So I was even I made even less money than I made playing professional <laughs> baseball living overseas. But that being said, I did have a lot of friends there. So we did a lot of, you know, because we were I was playing on the local team. Sure, so yeah. I lived I lived in Vienna and so I would travel around. So we went everywhere, you know, we'd go to yeah. um Prague one weekend, uh, Budapest the next weekend. Sure. West Austria, yeah, Munich, Oktoberfest. It was, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, yeah, my wife found this resort called Stengelwert in Austria that she saw on Instagram, and like we, we want to go so bad. It's like a, it, actually, it's kind of crazy for us to go because it looks like Beaver Creek, but it looked awesome. <laughs> <laughs> probably, it's probably exactly the same. I mean, like West Austria is. We were in Vermont last year, and it's pretty similar to that. It actually reminds, you know, a lot of uh, like Austrians actually moved to Vermont because I think it reminded them of it. That's cool. Um, okay, cool. So that's question number one. You can see that this is a very tight run. Yeah, focused <laughs> yeah. podcast. I listened to the other one. He was probably <laughs> he had a little bit more direct. David had a little bit more of a direct uh, career path. Mine's <laughs> mine's been led astray about ten times. So yeah, you know, it's just that personality type. You know, so when your wife gets mad at you for doing something crazy, you just go, "Well, you, you knew this when you married me." That's what I keep meaning to tell my wife, but you know, I, I seem to forget yeah, in the heat of the moment. Uh, what is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? Yeah, so right now with us launching last year, um, the big ones that we're doing this year, it's just going to be continuing to add products to our to our SKU list and then sure. um, start adding variants. And then our big goal in the next year would be like, so everything we do now is online, whether it's Amazon or website. And then we do a lot of sure. events. So we do sales and, and, and tastings at events because at the end of the day, as you know, in food and beverage, yeah. I mean, you got to try it. Like, cool if the packaging looks perfect whatever if i like the taste and it looks good then i'm gonna buy it or use it um and so that's what we've been focused on so the, the big goal next year would be to start once hopefully um you know in-store sampling happens again that we can start to get into stores so that's sure. kind of where we're starting and then from there obviously um like we talked about earlier those the social economic stuff that we can eventually do i think at that point we'd be in a better position to start really working on initiatives um, overseas, but we got to get back to where we can go overseas, which I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah. 
I'm supposed to go to France and Iceland. I've rescheduled this trip like three times. I was literally <laughs> supposed to leave March 13th of last year. And then like, it, it, it's so crazy because then it's like, is God trying to send me a message? Like Iceland's volcano is erupting. France is locking down again. Like, do I have to schedule this thing again? But like, uh, we got like, we're like, it was like, we built an epic trip. So I'm just kind of like, but uh, it better go. Like the world just needs to get back to like, like everyone's getting vaccinated. At least here we are. So we should just be able to go where we want. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd hope so. And Iceland, you got like 48,000 people. So you should be good. Yeah. I know. If they, <laughs> but that's their problem. Then the number skews. Five people got it. And that's like 20%. They're like, oh my God, shut it down. The, uh, <laughs> so it's ridiculous. But that volcano is like right by the airport. Like it was like literally where we were going to stay. Like we're triangling around their volcano that's erupting, but they don't seem to be that concerned about it. So whatever. Um, yeah, who knows? Uh, I, I do have a question. Actually, it has nothing to do with what you just said, by the way, but I wanted to just learn more that. about it. So uh, we had another uh, a woman on here uh, a couple weeks ago. And she is doing, she has a beverage company as well, but she's doing a, um, a crowdfunding raise as well. And um, I want to know how that, uh, how your crowdfunding went. Like, what was that about? How much did you, did you make? Was it a way just to gauge interest? And tell me about that, because I think people would be interested to know that what that's all about. Because I'm sure people have seen it, but that very few people have done it that you would know. Well, because I, I actually didn't get to listen to her podcast, but I did I did read up on their company a little bit. And so yeah. I think they're out of the UK, right? Yeah, right? she's out of the yeah. UK, yep. And so the UK is, um, I think they use that, uh, that platform a lot more where it's actual investment in the company, which I think oh, yeah. is probably our next step of funding would be where, so the, so the original crowdfunding, like we did Kickstarter and there's Indiegogo and, all these other platforms um they're they're mainly to, to be honest the best for like if you had a random puzzle or card game or literal board game like those things are yeah. insanely impressive to use so what we did is we we kind of put it at ten thousand. i saw a couple other food and beverages that could get 15 maybe twenty thousand. Sure. and so what i wanted to gauge was i kind of wanted to do it as like a pre-sale slash it gets people the opportunity to you know charge so like try a large amount of the product and it's going to be mostly yeah. friends family and you know friends of friends things like that but sure. it gives you a platform for people to kind of understand that you're about to launch a company and it was a it was a really good experience just for learning how to you know push your product out to people or push your brand story out to people and to get organized and to get everything set up and then the big key was, you know, I think some people shoot for too low or too high. It's to kind of really research around what you think your your product can do at that time, based on the based on the type of because uh, it goes through kind of industries. I'll say, like, you know, like I said, if you're a puzzle, like we saw a cat game fundraise, it's a cat board game fundraise, two hundred thousand dollars, right? So it's like <laughs> it's you could it's completely random what works, but a lot of those, and then a lot of those, we didn't do any like outside marketing. It's a whole system. We didn't actually use, you can use full outside marketing teams that will help push your Kickstarter. The same as like Google ads or Facebook ads. It's pretty crazy. Um, but I actually really look forward to the time where we can do the crowdfunding where it's for equity in a company. Because I think that's a really cool way for people to feel a part of a larger mission. Um, it's one thing to buy the product originally and try it and use it and be a part of it that way. It's another thing when you feel like you have um, like you're in touch with that company cause now you own a, a portion of it. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was a good experience. Um, it's definitely a, it's definitely hard. It's definitely a, um, 
it wasn't like, oh, you just turn it on and all of a sudden you made $12,000, you know, it definitely took a lot of, a lot of, um, time to try to really push it out and let people know about it and keep on people and stuff like that. But yeah, so we successfully did, I think it was 11,000 something. Um, and our goal was 10,000. So that was a huge deal because that got us literally our first run in the, in the food and beverage. And I don't know if you talked to other people in this space, but it's kind of the same as franchising, right? It's pretty expensive on the upfront cost. And yeah. at least with franchising, you can go into a bank and say, Hey, I've collateral on the house or like, Hey, this is a brick and mortar. So I'm going to fund it, right? Like you're going to get yeah. a loan to fund it. Whereas um, in this type of business, we can't really go that route because we're not going to be a brick and mortar. So you're not funding it that way. So it's a great way to really help fund your first product run. And so that's, that was one of the biggest things for us is it really helped fund the product run. Well, yeah, because if you don't have the, the money up front, I mean, because you've got to, the only way to get any kind of econ economies of scale would be to buy enough packets, if you will, to like actually make it worthwhile to even get someone to retool their, uh, to even retool their factory to produce what you're trying to produce. So, and to print the labels, like you're not going to get those little like packets printed, you know, less than 10,000 or a hundred thousand, you know, so yep. you know, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? The, the lady who invent if you, I don't know if you have masterclass, we had it for like a year, but the lady who invented Spanx, she really talked about like she on her podcast or on her masterclass, she really talked about like getting the people to produce it correctly and all that, the manufacturing and that, and by the way, that episode was Julia Kessler. It's episode, it's episode 35 of the podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, but she, she talks about, like her production and then they had just launched they were launching their kickstarter when we chatted but um yeah they yeah. found it pretty well from what i looked at too and that's oh, it's wow. pretty fantastic Great. there was another baobab company um out of the uk that funded really well as well it's pretty cool i think the food and beverage when it comes to putting into the company seems like a really good route people seem really um, in tune with it because it's a health and wellness space and they want people want to invest in that yeah, absolutely. That's cool. That's really exciting. Um, it's interesting. Like you're the fifth. I think you're the fifth. You're the fifth guy I've spoken to, including Julia. We'll call her a guy as well. But uh, you know, um, that has started a beverage company in the last like couple of weeks. It's pretty crazy. We've had uh, yes. T, her Nixon kicks. Uh, you have uh, these the powders and like the uh, the health and wellness coffee and a brewer, all in the last like three or four weeks. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's it's one of the it's a it's a pretty unique space. It's a very creative space. That's why I really enjoy it. But um, yeah, it seems more and more, and I think people are looking for you know a beverage is I kind of look at it as a luxury. Is to be honest, right? If you think about it, like you could survive off water. So it's, it's has such a creative side to it and people for so long were just inundated with, you know, high sugar products and that was pretty much it. Yeah. And so now that sugars, you know, people know the effects of it and they know the effects of artificial sweeteners and things like that. They're really looking for innovative products that can provide that satisfaction that you look for in a drink, you know, like, um, it's, it's pretty creative to get to that point and, and, and the health benefits that they're looking for. So it's no longer, are you just looking for strictly taste? A lot of times you're looking for taste, but what function am I going to get from it? Whereas, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, it was like, 
do I want this for lunch or whatever? And then pretty much everything else. If you did want something for function, you weren't going to enjoy it, you know? So now it's yeah. really battling to, to get to both of those. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's like, we, like, so my wife and I and a bunch of our friends were training now for the triple bypass race, which is here in Colorado. It's like a very uh, intense bike race over three yeah. different mountain passes. And, uh, but part of that is you go, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I have a, like, I have a stationary bike in the basement, but like, um, you know, I'm going on these super long bike rides now and you need one of the big things with cycling, which I had no idea about is that you have to be constantly eating and fueling yourself because it is low impact in that you're not like running a marathon. But at the same time, if you're out there for three or four hours, you burn a ton of, you know, calories and whatnot. And you need to be constantly drinking about 240 calories of carbs every hour just to fuel yourself so you don't like get dizzy and bark out so like i'm looking at your stuff going hey i want to try some of this to see how well that does versus none or something else that i've been using so yeah, we were actually just at um ironman galveston yesterday and the day before oh cool we were at that expo so yeah it's exactly that space um you know it's not our core core only product like area for sure. it because it, it does like just taste good. So you can just drink it in the afternoon, things like that. But yeah, when you start to create a functional beverage, we know in that space, it's super important. Like you just said, literally, you just named everything. Like when you bike for six hours, you need electrolytes, you need carbohydrates, you need all these things. Um, and so we wanted to be a product that you could do that with a natural ingredient as the core ingredient. So everything else in the space, um, you know, isn't going to have a fruit. So I guess I didn't tell you that, but the fruit and this is the, probably the most unique part and the hardest thing to explain is that when you say you crack open the fruit, you know, a normal fruit is pretty juicy, sure. um, something like that. It's actually a powder. So oh, we don't wow. process it. Yeah. So, so when you open it, it's literally clumps of powder. So the only processing is to see that into a full powder, but that's it. And so you're getting all those nutrients without having had to pasteurize them or change them, you know? Oh, that's really interesting. So I have another question for you. This is based off. So my buddy, uh, John Lewis, who's one of the first podcast tracks on the podcast, but he's a buddy of mine from grad school. And he was working in the supply chain for Wendy's, right? And so Wendy's at one point, and this is probably years ago. So they, they were going to have a, a an acai salad, right? Well, you mm. know, the, these fast food chains, for instance, you don't realize how big, how much food these guys are consuming and processing. And so they had to go, Wendy's had to go and start buying up acai years, literally two to three years before this salad was going to release. So they had planned to make the salad, let's say in 2015 In 2012 and 2013, they were investing with farmers to grow the acai. Uh, they were already starting to collect it and freeze it so that they could you know then be able to release it in a real way to, to meet their demand right so yeah. is enough of this baobab baobab fruit excuse me uh being grown today that if you guys went ape right through the roof that they would be able to keep up yeah worldwide I, demand for sure it'll it'll hit a point but it, that's that's nowhere near a f anywhere in the future like in sure. in the year or two but um there will eventually be a maximum just based on the fact that you don't grow it the same way that you grow sugarcane things like that but we're yeah. talking tons and tons of it like it's it's got a long way to go and a lot of times too um the difference is how it's used so like since it's a powder it ships different and it can be um 
you know, utilized differently. It takes up a different sure. amount of space as well. Uh, so a lot of those, sure. they run into the issues, you know, is just space and growing it and things like that. And so the Baobab, the, the real advantage is it just grows naturally. So as long as they continue to plant more trees, it'll just continue to grow. It takes a long time for them to grow, but um, there's already a bunch there. And so there's already a few different companies that um, work with the local communities to harvest it. And they have surpluses now um, because like I said, most of it just falls to ground. So they have these surpluses. So now it's just about developing that system and that network to make sure that the farmers farm it correctly, not too early, things like that, not just for economic value. And then to make sure that, um, you know, they continue to add more regions that aren't a part of it. So that's going to be, it's going to be more logistical by the end than anything else. Just the same way you're talking about Wendy. Yeah. I can't fathom thinking about large, like Chipotle, you know, I was just, you yeah. know, you said Chipotle the other day. I'm like, man, imagine the, like the bell peppers, like how many yeah. arms they have to secure just to only have the bell peppers. Well, and so like, I think John was saying that when they, Wendy's moved to like the sea salt cut natural fry, that they had like 44,000 trucks of like fries moving around, like insane numbers of data. Like you've heard the story that like the, they can't run the McRib because they would literally use up all the pigs in the country if they ran the McRib like as a full menu item. So they literally have to strategically like, you know, they save, they, you know, they basically get the McRib meat and they freeze it and then they're like, you know, they can release it. And that's, it, it is, it's just absolutely crazy how, People don't realize how big these chains are and how much food they're really serving, like to keep your supply chain going. Like the amount of potatoes in this country that are, it's nuts. Um, cool. Okay. So what's the one thing in the, in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Uh, so for us right now, you know, I'd say, and you might've been talking to other people about this, but with the pandemic and being a newer beverage company, I think they, the beverage companies might run into the same issue, especially if you're trying to sell online. Um, it's a big spend game. Um, sure. so I, I would say the biggest one for us right now is just, um, and as well, just getting into stores cause everybody, you can't communicate with people the same. And so yeah. these people that you normally could go walk into or go sample, in person, you can't do those things anymore. It started to open up. Sure. Like I said, we've done a lot of events where we could um, in the South the last few months, but like most things aren't open. And so one of the biggest things for us is we have to have people try it and taste it. And sure. so it's just like, how do we get it into people's hands, especially just with the internet? How do you get it for people to try and taste sure. you know, without them? Because a lot of times, the first time you try something, you don't want to spend $20. You don't want to spend $30. Yeah. You want to figure out that, that way that I can decide if I like that better. Um, or you just learn from somebody else. Like in your case, the bike ride, um, you might talk to the other people when you started shopping for your bike, they say, use this product. And so you use this product basically because they told you that it's what you're supposed to use. And so yeah. that, that educational process, um, cause we are a small company, you know, when we start with my founders from Africa and I had been traveling playing baseball, um, it's just being creative. So that's one of the biggest things. Cause most of the people in the drink space and the people that you've probably been talking to, um, it usually it, it takes a fair bit to get it up and running to start. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's, you know, it, the, none of this is easy, right? Like if it was easy, we'd all be doing it. You know what I mean? Like we've been in business yep. for six years now and it's like, we're, we're finally hitting our stride, but you know, it took years of just slugging away, like just, you know, every day running at the same brick wall face first and then just <laughs> not giving up and just keep going and keep going and 
incrementally moving it. Plus, what other people don't realize about whenever you start something like this, from my experience, and, and please tell me if you disagree, but you'd be crazy to disagree, by the way. But anyway, now it's just that <laughs> everything takes longer than you think it's going to take. So if you mentally go, well, I can get this done in two weeks, it's going to take <laughs> six weeks. Like, like the human brain cannot fathom very well the complexity of every single task. So I always think everything takes, if you've done it before, it'll take twice as long as you think it will take. But if you've never done it before, like you're figuring it out for the first time, it'll be four to five times longer than you think it's going to take to do it. And, uh, and nobody accounts for that. And so your run rate's always like under stress because you just simply can't get things crossed off your list fast enough. I think you, yeah, that's every, I mean, I'm experiencing it full bore right now, but you're literally saying the exact thing and it happened. It's happened the entire time. I would say, you know, even the development of a product that was hilarious. Like I remember talking to the packaging company and I was like, we're all, we're almost there. And he's like, all right, you're fine. Like it's going to take longer than you thought. (laughs) Like it's everything. It's every part of it. You're like, Oh, we're going to get this supply in or, Oh, we're going to do this or, Oh, we're going to set up this program. And it's like all of it takes longer. Um, then you, yeah, you just nailed but it. it never, and, then, and it never gets easier because it's everything you're doing at the beginning is the first time you ever did it. It's the first time you ever built a commerce website. It's the first time you ever built Facebook ads. It's the first time you ever got a printer to printage packaging material and move it somewhere. And so then you don't even know what to expect, but you think, ah, well, if we can get this done in two weeks and then like eight weeks later, like, Son of a bitch. <laughs> and then, but then as you get better at doing those things, it still takes longer than you think it's going to take every time. Um, yeah. Which I mean, but that's also like, what's crazy about it. And like fun, you know, what I was thinking is, you know, what you guys should try to do is raise, do a raise to send individual packets off the internet. Cause I'm looking at these packets, like what, yeah. what could you ship those for? You know, like I mean, one packet, you know, and then see if you couldn't like give that away as a loss leader through Facebook ads or something. But I'm sure you looked at all that. It, that can't be cheap because we're shipping individual packages and postage. Look at it. Yeah. Well, and so everything outside a letter is over 50 cents, obviously. Um, yeah. You can usually get it down. It's about three. So you have to make it kind of worth the value. So we do, we do a thing and that would actually be an interesting one for you to look at. It's called sweat coin and we're actually doing it this week. So it's a promotional thing where it's an app that it's it gamifies steps for coins. Oh, cool. So you do 10,000 steps, you get, you know, 50 coins, right. Or five coins or whatever. And then they do, they have a whole promotional section on there that then products can advertise. And so like in our case, we'll sell um, a six pack, you know, you'll get a free six pack, a sampler of two flavors, um, for the cost of, you know, oh, shipping. Cool. And then that at least gets people to try it. Um, and that's what we found is really great just to give people the opportunity to try. And then the in, in-person events has been the other best, but yeah, exactly what you're talking about. We are going to continue to do, because to be honest, I think it's one fair for both sides. I think as a consumer, you want, you want to dabble in something, and especially a food product. Like, it, yeah. you know, you're buying a bike, you just yeah. read about it and then you buy a bike, right? Like it's a big <laughs> investment. So you're taking the time to research food products, drink products, you know, I'm going to just try it, see if I like it. And if I like it, I'll keep on buying it. And so it's like, give people the opportunity to do that at a fair cost. Um, if you have to lose, you try not to hopefully lose, but I think inevitably, like you said, you're, you're most likely going to have to um, a little bit or break even to do that, which to be honest is a lot of times okay. Cause it's a lifetime value is the key. 
So yeah, if you trust in your product and you believe in it, then like, like we do, like we believe once you try it, you're going to want to buy it again. So then it's an advantage to us over, over the long term. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's go. Uh, what is the one thing that you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't? Hmm. I'm going to say, so, and this is just based on, sorry if you can hear the dog squeaking in the background. Um, this is going to be just a general thing. So like, you know how pharmaceuticals have to go through the FDA for approval on products. And so you, even though you, at the end of a, you know, uh, commercial, you hear the 17, the side effects of it. I'm really surprised in the consumer goods industry that more is not regulated on the front end, you know? So like any product that you buy and more or less can be made and then put on shelves. And then if the problems come up on the back end, which is sure. kind of bad for both ends, but I guess the resources to, to take care of it on the front end and then the barrier to entry to get started would be a lot greater, but I feel like that because, because what happens is now we've seen this last year a lot. We've seen it in the space where like our product actually has a lot of vitamin C and is a, is really good for your, we'll just say immunity or not. I don't say immunity, just your health, right? Like a preventative yeah. type of product, but everybody and everything comes out now as immunity booster or, sure. you know, and it's like, I know that that's based off of a vitamin C claim or things like that, but it's like a lot of consumers, everybody that we talk to, we talk to as we do events, a lot of times gets confused on what is and what isn't good for you or what does this do for you. And so that's the one thing I wish would, would start to be, you know, but more clarified. The, the marketing is so vague, but I don't know how you would ever really tackle that full issue because somebody's always going to come up with something smarter and a new way to do it. But yeah, that's kind of one of the biggest things we've seen that I would love to see kind of more regulated or looked at. Yeah, it is. It, it's, I think it's really weird. And I think it, it applies to a lot of different areas, diet and health, uh, medicines, global warming, coronavirus, you can name any number of things. I feel like the government is failing us because like the government's job isn't to pick a horse in global warming or in nutrition or in a coronavirus response in any way, shape or form. Their job is to, to use all of our money to go figure out what's the real answer, not political answer, right? Yes. For every side there, and that's what the, and I don't know why I would expect the government not to be political. That'd be, that's, that's my own idiocy, right? <laughs> but like in general, like their job is to go, hey, this is the deal with global warming. Like we put our best brains on it. No BS. Like this is what's happening. This is why you should eat, right? This is what we need to do with coronavirus. No Republicans or Democrats, conservatives or liberals. Like this is the real deal. We're all going to die in a thousand years from global warming if we keep going this way. Yeah, I'm going to be dead in 80 years. Well, I'll probably be dead in like 40 years, but you know what I mean? So it doesn't really matter to me. I'm good. I want to keep my SUV or, Hey, for real, this is a big deal and you got to stop it. But today both sides are just confusing everything and they're yelling at each other and you don't get, and you only get the information you get from your news station. And none of us know what the hell is really going on. Like, you know, yes. I would get rid of my SUV if it was truly destroying yeah. the earth. Yeah, like it but was truly like, I don't know that it is because for every scientist that tells me it is, I can find another scientist who's tell, telling me it's not. And that's where 
we as the people need to go to the government and say, hey, like use real data and figure this stuff out and tell us what the deal is. Like that's what you're supposed to be doing. Not just what the Biden camp wants or the Trump camp wants. I wanna know what's really happening so I can make good database decisions. And, and where you're coming from is the same thing. Like, hey, it, it goes back to your whole like, well, people are making all these weirdo claims. Like you don't know how to lose weight. You know what I mean? Like what's safe and what's not safe and blah, blah. It's just so frustrating. Yeah. And it's, you know, cause we see this with so many people. Like I, I want people to be in the case of say health. Well, we can talk about all those. Cause I agree with you on all of them. It's like, you know, even in the health, like even with us trying to research on other products that we want to buy for ourselves, even that sure. I have to like then do 10 pages of research and I'm like, still like, okay, should I have ate that chicken breast or should I not have ate that chicken breast, right? And I'm like, whoa, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's just stuff like that. I, yeah, it's it's in every aspect of our lives, and it would make it a lot easier when you talk to each other too, because we would all be not in agreement, but at least we'd know like when we talked yeah. about something is is uh, you know a chicken breast bad or good, or at least yeah. not bad or good. Does it have these traits? Does it do this? Because we don't need sure. bad or good because nothing's necessarily bad or good. It's like, what does it actually do? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, did you ever see that show, The Good Place? Mm -mm. It was like yeah. a network NBC show. But one of the things, uh, I, I won't go into I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but like the whole point was like that, like all the decisions on earth had gotten more complex over time. And so like, you know, like back in the day, of course, the chicken breast was good because it was either eat that chicken breast or you were going to die of starvation. So you didn't yes. really worry about it that much because you were like a subsistence level farmer. But then as you know, now we live in this world where we have such abundance of all these things from around the world that, you know, that decision is no longer just a simple decision. And, and it has all these different ramifications from not only is it just good lean protein, but does it have hormones? Is the chicken poop? Like a big problem with Purdue was that all the chicken poop was running into the Chesapeake Bay for a while because you know what I mean? And so like they were like poisoning the water system and putting all this salmonella in the water system, which was hurting, you know, fishermen and people swimming in the Bay and all that, you know, and it's just like, it's, yeah, it's just too complex. And like, the government focuses so much on whatever administration's agenda it is versus just giving people the honest to God facts because we are smart enough to make decent decisions and our decisions aren't always based on maybe our decisions are based on a lot of different factors, including our socioeconomic. Hey man, chicken's cheap, you know, like so many, so many menu items are made because there's an abundance of a certain part of an animal that's going to be out there, right? Like during, like Wingstop crushed it during the pandemic because everyone was buying chicken breasts and cooking at home and they bought up all the wings. So then they bought up like tons of the wings and then they were able to get crazy good pricing on them. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's just so many factors to all this stuff. And sometimes you just go, shit, man, I don't even want to think about any of this anymore. I just want chicken breasts because they taste good when you fry. Um, Okay, we're coming up to like the war story, which is my favorite part of the show. Um, so give us a war story. This can be cringeable. This can be funny. It could be just some crazy story. I don't care. could be with your business. So I didn't really talk. Yeah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back into it because I know this is a restaurant, obviously, podcast. Yeah. It originally was, and you've kind of branched. But like, so I did a little, I mean, I've done a lot of different jobs from catering to working at restaurants, stuff like that. And one of my best stories was first time I ever did catering. 
It was in San Diego in a, I don't know if you're familiar with Rancho Santa Fe. I've heard of it, yeah. So anyways, they have very nice catering locations. Um, my brother got me the job. Um, I'm just going to go there, you know, learning. I've never obviously served or done any kind of catering. Uh, first event is a themed event. I have to wear a turban as well as a vest. And <laughs> I am French serving like scalding hot filet mignon and sauce um, <laughs> over the shoulder of multimillionaires. <laughs> and I think I was like 17 or 18. And I was just like, what did I just get myself into? My brother was, I was like, is this the normal event? I'm never doing this ever again in my life. He's like, dude, this is the craziest thing I've ever been a part of. Um, <laughs> and so that was like my first um, gig, I would say, in the industry. And then from there, it's, you know, you have one story after another. But that was like literally day one of me ever doing it. Yeah. So they gave you like those searing hot like steak plates that are like sitting in the salamander at 1800 degrees so that they're searing the beef and you're like terrified and you don't even know like how heavy those things are. Your hands shaking. Oh man, that's awesome. And you had to wear a turban. That's funny too. They, uh, wow. That's a good one. I liked it. Um, well, sir, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And, uh, Good luck to you guys. And I will put uh, your Drink Tiga uh, URL and stuff into uh, the show notes so people can check out your stuff.